Well, good morning. This is Lesson 25 in our study of the Gospel of Mark. And I'm sure based on my title, you're hoping that I will bring you a brief message. (laughs) I'm sorry that is not the case. Let me go to the second frame here and then the third uh, of our PowerPoint. The first picture is a picture of my uh, mother and father standing in front of their... uh, of some of their flowers at their place, I think. <laughs> Stephen, are we there? <laughs> yes! Uh, one of the neighbors did that bear, by the way, from a stump, I think. Uh, that's mom and pop up on the lake. Now, go to the next picture. This is a, a rummy cube, and, and that table is the scene for uh, many a game that goes on with my mom and my dad. And then when we're there, uh, we play as well. Which leads me to this uh, phrase, one more game, winner take all. That's, that's the, the, the expression as we're working uh, later at night and, and it's time to quit. But the reality is you haven't won yet. And so you keep trying for one last game that's somehow going to save your bacon, right? That reminds me of the questions and the answers in our text in Mark. It's like these guys saying, one more game, winner take all. And they just don't get it. The deeper they go, the worse it is. When you think about the questions that we're into, it's obvious that the opponents of our Lord Jesus are asking many questions. But I don't think it really occurred to me until recently how many questions our Lord asks And when he asks them, it may often be very devastating. For example, when, uh, when the, the, the Lord uh, cleanses the temple, he says, is it not written, my house shall be the house of prayer for all nations? If that is true, then to somehow congest the court of the Gentiles with all of this merchandising is to run contrary to the word of God and to run at the business end of a whip from our Lord. And then when the, uh, when the authority of our Lord Jesus is challenged by the top religious leaders, Jesus asks another question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? It's a question that has but two answers. And you have to pick one of the other, and either answer would be, of course, fatal for the opposing uh, forces. Then uh, Jesus uh, tells this parable of the owner of the vineyard who rents it out to others and they send away the servants, they beat some, they kill others, and finally they kill the son. And Jesus asks the question, what should that owner do? And in some of the parallel texts, the people actually cry out, they ought, he ought to come and he ought to kill those wicked people and he ought to put new people in charge. And then they realize what they've said. And they're horrified by the thought of the implications of their own words, their own answer to the question Jesus raised. He also, remember, asked the question, uh, it's actually in in, uh, Matthew's account, which son, which son obeyed the father, the one who said, I won't, and repented and did, or the one who said he would and didn't? And they said, well, it's the one that repented. And Jesus then takes that and says, 
Why don't you learn from that? Why didn't you listen to John the Baptist? Why didn't you repent when other people repented who heard his preaching? And then uh, he asks in our text, so whose likeness and inscription is on this coin? Seems like an innocent question, but every time they answer one of Jesus' questions, they're in deep trouble, right? Or to put it differently, the label Haynes is starting to show. Now, I'm going to get myself off the hook for my title, if I can. In the Old Testament, I don't know if I want to, but in the Old Testament, it was very clear that one of the ways to shame your enemy was to expose their lower parts. Would that not be true? So when, for instance, the king of the Ammonites was killed, Nahash, David decided as the king to send a delegation to express sympathy. But his son, Hanun, did not uh, take it that way. He, he took it as a delegation of spies to spy out the land, and so they... they they cut a trap door. I don't know how many of you are old enough to remember the long johns that they used to have. Does anybody remember the long johns with the trap doors? Oh, thank you. Anyway, the, the, the trap doors that were there, well, this was a set of long johns without the door. <laughs> or to put it otherwise, the door was wide open. And it was a way of bringing shame. They also shaved half of the beard off. I think it's important to see that metaphorically speaking... When these folks try to expose Jesus, he exposes them. And it is not just the label that gets seen. Uh, They are fully exposed. Now, I know we live in a day when this metaphor probably doesn't fly. I wouldn't put a picture on the screen. But there are people today where you don't have to wonder what the label says. You don't have to wonder what size or color they are or whether they've been washed because you could see it all. But in Jesus' day, when people came to him and sought to make him look foolish, it was them who had the metaphorical exposure uh, performed. So Jesus is taking on his opponents, and they don't want to be outdone. And so they are saying, let's just do this one more time, winner take all. So the question that comes up now is the question, shall we pay taxes or not? I make the next question, uh, whose wife? I might make this one, whose money? But here's the question and the, the backdrop that comes behind it. Jesus has come into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, and he has cleansed the temple. These are symbolic ways of him proclaiming his authority. And, of course, that is immediately met with the challenge by the top authorities of the land in terms of religion. By what authority are you doing these things? Jesus then says, I'll answer your question with a question. You answer mine, I'll answer yours. Was John's authority from heaven or from men? And you remember, they said they couldn't answer because if they said from heaven, he would have to say, why then didn't you believe him? If they said from men, they would have to answer to the crowds. So Jesus is going to ask 
appointed uh, in in the in the pointed parable he's going to ask the question what did the owner of the vineyard do with the two sons he's going to ask what did the son which son did, did the father's will and now he's going to come back uh, and they're going to come back to him with another question and the essence of it is let's turn the tables on Jesus let's ask Jesus a question that has one of two answers possible and either answer gets him into trouble. So it's like game on. We're going to replay this all over. And now we're going to do the same thing to Jesus in effect that he has done to us. Shall we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, notice who's orchestrating this. The they takes us all the way back to the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. In other words, the top religious authorities in Jerusalem are orchestrating the events. But note who is sent. Their disciples, we are told. Their disciples, and actually in Luke, it's said they're, they're spies. Now, my point is this. These guys may be slow learners, but if anybody's going to have Haynes showing, it won't be them this time. It's fresh meat. It's the changing of the guard. We're going to send these young seminary theologues, and we're going to let them take Jesus on. If they win, we win. If they lose, well, it's not as bad for us as it's been. They send their disciples to ask the question. The goal of the confrontation is pretty clear and it it becomes clear to us clearest to us in the gospel of luke now when we look at our text in matthew it is clear they want to catch jesus in his words they want to have jesus say something in his words which gets him into trouble but when i looked at this initially i thought to myself they're playing both ends against the middle they're, they've got the Herodians there, they have the, the uh, Pharisees there, and boy, those are polar opposites, are they not? You've got secular guys and the Herodians, religious guys with the Pharisees, separatists with the Pharisees, compromisers with the Herodians, and it looks to me as though the Herodians are tagalongs. In other words, it's really the Pharisees who are in the lead. The Herodians are brought along, and it's not that they're hoping Jesus will answer one way or the other and one side will get him, because Luke's gospel says their intent is to get him in trouble with Rome. Their intent is to get Jesus to answer in a way that says, in effect, don't pay your taxes. Now, that's clearly what Luke says. And in Luke chapter 23 and verse 2, when they are standing before Pilate and they are making their false accusations against Jesus, you know what they say? This man teaches us not to pay our taxes, claiming to be a king. And Pilate responds to Jesus, are you then a king? So this is a charge that will be against Jesus by Rome. And, and you see how the Pharisees win in this? They desperately want to arrest Jesus and be rid of him. But they're scared to death of the crowds. So if Jesus answers the way they anticipate, then it's the Herodians are going to turn him in. And Jesus is in trouble with Rome. It doesn't matter what the crowds say. That's the plan as they bring this charge 
against the Lord Jesus. Notice what he says. Oh, well, notice, first of all, what they say. Jesus, we know that you're a man of the truth. You're a man of integrity. You're not one of these politicians that polls and finds out what people want to hear and you give them exactly that. You're a man who speaks the truth. You speak your mind no matter what people think, which was true. Which was true, was it not? Jesus did not cater to his audience. He did speak the truth. But they're playing the old Daniel game. They realize the only way to get Jesus is in his strength. And so they're, they're saying this as flattery so that Jesus will speak the truth and get himself in trouble with the Herodians and with Rome. And uh, so they say, shall we pay taxes? Is it right to pay taxes? And then they put it down to the two-part question. you got to answer one or uh, two-piece answer, yes or no. Do we pay taxes to Caesar? Yes or no? It looks like Jesus is in trouble, doesn't it? That's what they thought. That pause, that pause must have been a pregnant pause, and they thought, at last. Now we have a two-answer question that Jesus gets to deal with. And Jesus points out their hypocrisy. He says, come on, guys. You know what this is about. And then he goes and says, uh, hand me a coin. Now, that's a pretty interesting thing. I would take it that Jesus didn't have any denarius with him. Wouldn't be surprised. He didn't carry the bag. Judas did. Get me a coin. Now, I don't know whether they dug down into their pockets and got one, but they got their hands on one. And it didn't seem to bother them too much. And then he says to them, so look on the coin. Whose who's picture's there? Whose inscription? Who's it written about? And, and again, these guys fall into the question. They say, well, that's, that's Caesar. His inscription. It was believed in those days, unfortunately, similarly to what it's believed today, that whoever does the money owns the money. And so... It was assumed that if Caesar had his face on the coin, he had the right to get it back. And a lot of that was through taxes, folks. Anyway, we don't want to talk about that. It's not April anyway. So Jesus says to him, look at this. Here's his inscription. Give him what's his. Give God what's his. Man, can you imagine these guys looking at each other like, wait, 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 wait. that wasn't, that wasn't one of our options. <laughs> How, how do we get here? And so here they are looking at each other, and all they have is amazement. So I said, so they did wear Hanes. <laughs> isn't that where it's all coming? Oh, man, it's just coming so fast, and it isn't over yet. But, the, you know, in a sense, it's amusing to us. But this is one of the most critical questions the church has ever faced. It's the question of the separation of church and state, is it not? It's the question about what government has the right to expect from us and what we have the obligation to give to it or to God. So it's not a, it's not a, uh, not a light matter. Notice that he ends up with a general principle. So it covers the whole turf. It covers the whole spectrum of church and state. Give God what belongs to him. Give Rome what belongs to Rome. Now, 
When you look at the New Testament, especially Romans chapter 13, but also Titus 3, 1 and 1 Peter 2, the answer is, in general terms, when you give to Rome what belongs to Rome, you are also giving obedience to God. Isn't that what Paul says in Romans 13? Paul says, God has established human government on this earth to bring about order, law and order, amongst men, so it is appointed. Therefore, to disobey government is to disobey God. I don't want to think about this very much or very long, but to break that speed limit out there that says 30 right here, 35 just a little bit up the road, to break that is to disobey God. That's what it means. If we obey government in the realm in which it is appropriate, we are obeying God. Now, I go on to say, as we all know, there are exceptions. But my friend, my point is, they are exceptions. It is like the question about divorce and remarriage. Jesus wants the principle to be clear so that exceptions are exceptions and not the rule. So, when you have a prayer forbidden in Daniel chapter 6, Daniel must disobey because prayer belongs to God, not to Rome. When you have the forbidding of the preaching of the gospel in Acts chapter 5, they say, you can do what you have to do, but we will obey God rather than men. So the preaching of the gospel is a command, and we must do that whether government permits it or not. We may come to experience the reality of the consequences of that before too long. Emperor worship. Now, I realize that Daniel 3 may be a bit of a stretch, but it's surely the case with the church where the emperor of Rome is is demanding to be worshipped as God, and it's, I think, also true in that text in Daniel chapter 3. Worship belongs to God, not to earthly leaders, and therefore, that is an exception. So, I just say, we would do well to think carefully about what belongs to God and what belongs to government. And then I toss in, if we bear God's image, and by the way, it's exactly the same Greek word that is used. Whose image is on this? Genesis chapter 126 says, God created man in his image. <laughs> uh, we're made in God's image, not government's. That means God owns us. Government does not own us. God owns us. And we owe him worship, belief, obedience, praise. Oh, by the way, if our God is our money, the Pharisees were lovers of money. Pharisees were lovers of money. If government owns the money and we are owned by our money, (laughs) government owns us. Kind of a challenging thought, I think. Okay, whose wife? Verses 27 through 33. Now we come to the Sadducees, the first and only reference to the Sadducees in the uh, Gospel of Mark. It is very interesting to note, however, when you come to the book of Acts, the Pharisees start to fade in their opposition and the Sadducees really rise to the front, and the reason is the resurrection. 
See, when, when Paul stands up in Acts chapter 23 and says, I'm a Pharisee. I believe in the resurrection of the dead. The other Pharisees are saying, hey, he could be right. Sadducees are saying, oh, no, no way. So when the resurrection of Jesus is proclaimed in the book of Acts, Sadducees are the guys that are going to get bent out of shape about it. So notice the changes that we see. Now we've moved from the religious leaders, the Pharisees, and uh, uh, I would say assisted by the Herodians to the Sadducees who do not believe in the resurrection. Mark makes that clear in verse 18, and uh, Acts makes it very clear in chapter 23, verse 8. So the issue is to challenge Jesus on this matter of the resurrection, and they do so by posing this very complex, and would you not agree with me, very hypothetical problem. I mean, how many times do you think it ever happened this way? I really think this is one of those questions that they bantered around seminary students. You know, it's the kind of kind of inane, uh, hypothetical thing that, you know, everybody's kind of flexing their muscles on, but the reality is there's no answer because it's hypothetical. Seven husbands for one wife, no children. Come on. Okay, so that's what they're going to do, but it's dealing with Levirate marriage, which is taught by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 25. They seek to undermine Jesus' credibility as a teacher, and at the same time to bolster their theological belief that there is no such thing as the resurrection of the dead. So I ask, what is the Sadducees' real agenda? Well, they reject the resurrection, but they need to demonstrate in some way that they believe in immortality. Now, think about this with me, friends. I've not read this anywhere, so again, I'm out way on the little limb of of, uh, my own tree. But try this on for size, because I think it makes sense. If you were a Sadducee and you believe there is no resurrection of the dead... In what sense could you ever hold to immortality? Through the bearing of children. Is that not right? What do you got left? (laughs) You got to have kids. And the Levirate law assures that will happen. It's it's not a wonder to me, and by the way, it's said, I don't know, that that the Sadducees were heavily committed to the Pentateuch, maybe not so much, to the, to the rest of the Old Testament canon. I don't know that. But they went to Moses, and Jesus went to Moses. So they go to Moses, they get this law, the Levirate law, which you know existed before the giving of the law, because that's how Judah uh, was dealing with, with uh, his sons in terms of Tamar. So it was very important for the line to continue. But I think in their minds, their twisted little Sadducee minds, they believed that somehow the bearing of children made one immortal, and therefore you didn't need the resurrection. So what they're hoping to do is to demonstrate, A, there is immortality, but it is not through the resurrection, and the grand slam is, when you see childbearing as the key to immortality, watch that carefully, the key to immortality, Then and then you add to that the dimension of the resurrection, 
What they're trying to show is it doesn't work. It can't work. So they take the law of Levirate marriage and they link it to resurrection, which they don't believe. But the reason they do is to try to make the point that it won't work. And so what they're saying is, all right, for the moment, we're going to grant your premise that there is resurrection of the dead. So here's the law of Levirate marriage. We know that Moses taught this. Here's this scenario where you have seven men married to one woman. They don't have any children. They die and they go to heaven. How do you handle that? That's what they're saying. What do you, how can you deal with a situation where you've got seven men and one woman and what they hope Jesus says is, Ah, yes, I don't know. See, that's the, that's the response he got from their top leaders when he said, where's the authority of John? Oh, they were waiting for that answer because if Jesus says, I don't know, then Jesus is saying somehow the resurrection and immortality is incompatible given a bodily resurrection. The resurrection and immortality in terms of just bearing children, that's workable. So they really have a system where they can document their own view, discredit Jesus at the same time. It looks like a win-win. <laughs> and we all know that Haynes is coming to the surface and it is a lose-lose that Jesus is getting them into. So they hope for, I don't know, they get, you don't know. You don't understand the scriptures or the power of God. Jesus never answers their question. Now, I'm sorry. I have to apologize to you if you haven't watched My Cousin Vinny. Now, Mike's going to get it. Patrick's going to get it. And a few of the guys are going to get it. But I love there's a scene in that movie that I'll never forget. The uh, Miss Vito, that, that New Jersey gal who grew up in a garage is going to give expert testimony about the tire tracks that have been left by a car that was driven by those who robbed a store and killed the guys. Ronnie's getting it too. And, and, uh, so in order to do the voir dire, they've got to, the, the, the district attorney needs to ask her a question. And the question is this. What is the point setting on a 1962, no, a 1955 Bel Air Chevrolet with a 327 engine and a four-barrel carburetor. And she says in her twang, I can't answer that. And, and uh, the district attorney is, is looking at that like, so what you're saying is you don't know the answer. And she says, no, it's a trick question. There is no answer to that question because the 327 engine wasn't introduced until 1962. It wasn't introduced with a four-barrel carburetor until 1964. And if you want to know the point setting for that engine, it was 16 thousandths. Don't you love that? I know only guys are laughing. I'm sorry. It's, I love that. I love that. What she's saying is it's an answer, it's a question which cannot be answered. And that's what Jesus is doing here. You've asked a question for which there is no answer because you've based it all on the false premise, as it were. They assume that there was marriage in heaven, and there isn't. 
They assume that there is no resurrection from the dead. There is. So, here's the Jesus, uh, the genius of Jesus' answer. A, Jesus reveals something new. Stan, I want to thank you for your question. Stan asked a question Friday morning, as, as a lot of the guys there do that are helpful to me. And he said, Jesus says you're greatly ignorant of the scriptures. Where in the scriptures would we get the fact that there is no marriage in heaven? And, and I kind of danced around with Stan and thought, well, you can imply it from here or there. It occurred to me, you can't. You can't. When Jesus wants to point out their ignorance of the scriptures, he goes to Exodus 3, 6 about the resurrection. Who would possibly have inside information on heaven except one who, John chapter 6, had come down from heaven? I think what Jesus is saying here is, I am the truth. I have truth that you may not even be aware of. And so to, to, to resolve your problem of ignorance, that you think marriage happens in heaven, then I, the one who came from heaven, I'm going to tell you, there isn't. Ooh. Well, that makes him look good and them look bad. But then they quote Moses, the Levirate law of marriage. And they work that one to death with their example. Jesus quotes Moses. And he goes to Exodus chapter 3, where it says, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Now, I have to confess to you, until I really studied this text, I misread Exodus 3, 6. I thought that Exodus 3 and verse 6 was God proving that he was eternal. You know, when Abraham was there, I was there. When Isaac was there, I was there. You know, and, and Jacob, I was there. That's not what he says. He says, I continue to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How can you be the God of a corpse? He's saying they continue to exist. See, now here are these guys saying, there is no resurrection, there is no life after death. And Jesus is saying, they're still around. Hey, the transfiguration, folks, who's there? People who were supposed to be dead. That's why Jesus calls death sleep. There is some sense then in which the dead people do not cease to exist. Now, the unbelieving dead are going to go for eternity in torment. The believing dead are going to be for eternity in the presence of our Lord. But what he's saying is, you cannot reach the conclusion to be dead is to be dead and gone. Because of what the Lord said in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6. So the Sadducees are speechless. Actually, Luke says <laughs> what they had to say. Well, that was a pretty good answer. <laughs> yeah, it was. And nobody dared to ask another. They finally said, game over. <laughs> he has won all. And it's just finished. So what does this say to us? Think about it. One, Jesus has opposed virtually every segment, or I should say every segment of Jewish life has opposed Jesus. Has it not? 
Herodians, Sadducees, Pharisees, chief priests, you know, everybody has gotten on the old wagon of let's take, let's take a shot at Jesus. And he's won every argument. Every segment opposed him, but he's won every argument. And these guys on whom Jesus, uh, with whom Jesus has been debating, they think the final word is the cross. These are the guys that will be standing around the cross, standing around Jesus at his trial, crying for his death. And they say to themselves, they're at the cross. Game over. But it isn't. And Jesus wins again, the final victory. Now, one of the things this should do for us is it should cause us to rethink our view of marriage and family. Marriage and family are very important. Do not misunderstand what I'm saying. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that our priorities need to be based on what's eternal versus what's temporal. And what Jesus tells us in our text and what Paul picks up on in 1 Corinthians 7 is marriage is not eternal. Family is not eternal. In fact, Jesus says, who are my brothers and my sisters and my mother? In that sense, it's a far different, far bigger family than that. Is family important? Yes. But Paul says, even of those who are married, that we ought to in some way take into account and live as though we were not. For those who are not married, Paul says, you ought to think seriously about staying single. Why? Because what we're about as Christians is eternal. If we best pursue our eternal purposes through a marriage and a family, hallelujah. (laughs) Thank goodness. But we need to understand marriage and family has to be taken in the light of the fact that it is a temporal institution so far as our Lord has revealed. So here's my question. Are we functional Sadducees? Are we functional Sadducees? They were weak on the scriptures and on the power of God. And and as I look at the church today, my friend, I'd have to say that's, that's a characterization of the church. People do not know the word of God as they ought to know it. And they do not believe in the power of God as they ought to. Do they? Do we? We don't. And so we can sit here and we can laugh at the Pharisees and the Haynes labels sticking out. The reality is, folks, we're not doing so well either. Power of God and the Word of God. I just put this out, debate versus declaration. It's interesting to me that Jesus, the greatest debater of all of human history, does not appear to win one convert in his debates. In fact... His his debate really polarizes the opposition, which presses them to push him to the cross. Now, all I'm saying is, when I understand what the scriptures say about evangelism, it's proclamation, folks. It's proclamation. We declare what God's word says about men and their condition and about the provision in Jesus Christ, and we look to the spirit of God to change hearts. But but we need to be a little careful about this debate thing. I think sometimes we get too much into it, and our egos get too much into it, and I'm just saying, let's be careful. So how real is our resurrection faith, and how does it impact our lives? 
Oh, and here's one. I added it to your notes, and I had to write it in on mine. Colossians chapter 2. And it's, it's basically this. Jesus is the answer to every important question that exists. Jesus is the answer to every important question that exists. Colossians chapter 2 says, uh, Christ himself, picking up from uh, verse 2, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, if you press on to read verse 4 and following, what it's saying is we need to be very careful about the philosophical approach to life I'm not saying it's wrong to pursue education. What I am saying is when that education, in effect, says there are very important eternal issues that need to be dealt with apart from Christ and his word, get off the train. Get off the train. And there's a lot of that. In in 1 Corinthians, I think what you see is that there is that group of, of false teachers who are saying, this Jesus stuff is good. It's fine. But we got to move on to deeper stuff. There is no deeper stuff. You want to know the critical answers to the critical questions? Then know Jesus. That's what was said in John chapter 6. Remember? When all the crowds left and Jesus says to his disciples, do you guys want to go too? Peter says, where do we go? You have the word of eternal life. That's really true, only to Jesus. One last thing. I am not saying all questions are wrong. I am not saying all questions are wrong. Many questions are wrong. And uh, if I could call it the Haynes approach to the understanding of the Bible. Think about the Bible. I like to think through the Bible in various grids. Think about the questions that men raise. There's obviously the question that Satan raises, half God said, and all the rest of the scriptures are going to show some labels on that. Pharaoh says to Moses, who is the God of Israel that I should obey him? Haynes. Who, the Israelites say, where is God and how do we know that he's with us? All through the wilderness wanderings, right? Haynes, Job. All right, God, I've had just about enough of this stuff. What do you think's going on here? Haynes, you know, isn't the last chapters? Job saying, shut my mouth. Woo. Habakkuk. Well, now, God, I've got some questions to ask you. What do you mean about these these Babylonians are going to come and pronounce judgment on us? Haynes, Jonah. Now, just one second, God. Haynes, (laughs) you can think your way through the Bible with that one label. But I want to say to you, there are legitimate questions that believers can and should ask. I think about Mary. When Jesus, when she was told that a Messiah was going to be born from her womb, her question was, how will this come about, seeing I am a virgin? She's not saying, I don't believe it. She's saying, tell me what's next, because what do I do? That's a question that's rooted in faith, not a question rooted in unbelief. It's the unbelief questions that we need to realize. Jesus has all the answers. Now, we don't have them now. We don't have all the answers to all the questions now. But I can tell you this, folks. There's going to be a Q&A in heaven, and there won't be one question 
in which Jesus will say, I never thought of that. All the questions have their answers in him. So the big question for us is, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. He's the answer to the great questions of life. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this text. Thank you that we know you are the one who knows all. You are the truth. Help us, Father, not to depart from the truth that you are and offer to us in your word. Help us to be convinced of your power and to be faithful students of your word and obedient to it. There's someone here this morning who has never trusted in the Lord Jesus. Then may they turn to him and trust him as the one who was punished in their behalf so that they might have their sins forgiven and spend eternity with him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.